for the events that we'll be reading about here, David, who's not yet king at that point, is lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan. That's in the last chapter, and now here we come to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out to Mahanan, excuse me, Mahanaim, to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place shall be called, or was called, Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. 
But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. And the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are such a kind shepherd to us to give us your flock, your inerrant word. God, make it our daily bread. God, it is our light in darkness and it's our infallible guide. And you are so kind to us, Father, in so many ways. God, would you give us eyes to see more and more your steadfast love and faithfulness to us? Because sometimes we don't see it very clearly. Father, we confess that far too often we have lived distracted lives as we foolishly allow ourselves to drift out of fellowship with you. We confess that we often chase the things of this world that so easily entangle while paying very little attention to you and your will for us. Father, forgive us for our idolatrous attachments to this world, whether those might be inherently evil things like sexual sin or hatred of those who disagree with us, or good things like family and friends and work that we have made into idols by placing them above you and your kingdom. Father, in your mercy, would you open our eyes to see your glory? Show us the folly of our wandering from you, and by your grace, rivet our attention on Jesus, his holiness, his majesty, steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Reveal to our spiritual blind spots that keep us from seeing the ways our lives are not pleasing to you. Reveal what they are. Give us the grace to repent of our sins and the faith to receive your forgiveness and walk in the peace that comes from your forgiveness. Cause our lives to be marked by repentance and keeping short accounts with you. Father, for those who are struggling with sin this morning, God, set us free, Father. Remind us of your grace and mercy we have through the gospel. Allow us to know the joy of your forgiveness and help us to trust in the promise of your steadfast love for your children. Father, for those who think they know you but are deceived and lost in their sins, reveal that truth to them about their souls. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that we could never live. He never buckled to temptation. 
Thank you, God, that his perfect record of overcoming every temptation has been transferred to our spiritual account because we've been united with him by the Spirit. Father, as both a local and a national church, we cry out for an awakening touch from you. God, we ask that you renew in us a spiritual hunger and thirst that would cause us to put you first above all things. We ask that you would revive us, O Lord, that we might delight in you, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, that you would reign unchallenged in our hearts, that we would increasingly grow in our love for you and our love for others, especially those in the body of Christ. Father, for those struggling with trials, whether they be mental or physical, relational, emotional, or spiritual, Father, we ask, would you give comfort and relief? Pour out your mercy, O God. In our minds, we know you're sufficient to meet our every need, but in our hearts, too often we foolishly abandon faith in exchange for our own pitiful and fallen resources. God, use the trial in our lives to draw us closer to you and to give us an eternal perspective that values you and the things of your kingdom far more than anything in this fallen world. Father, we're grieved. We are grieved by what is happening in our land and the increasing divide in our nation. And we're sobered in the light of that by Jesus' promise that a house divided against itself cannot stand because we are a sharply divided people. And so God, our only hope is that you pour out your spirit on this land and bring a new great awakening. God, we ask this. Unite us around your son as you enrapture us with his supremacy and his sufficiency. God, help us in your church not to join the world by practicing the divisive attitudes and behaviors of this world that's so easy to fall into, and we do it thinking it's just fine and it's not. Instead, cause us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Cause us to see that our citizenship is not of this world, but is in heaven, and that your values, not the values of this world, should direct how we live. Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus. He's our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. We celebrate that he is Lord over all, and we do yearn for his kingdom rule to be manifest here on earth when he will place all enemies under his feet. God, we ask that you'd make us zealous for his name and for his fame, that we wouldn't be ashamed to share him as our one true hope with many who do not know you and who now live under your holy wrath. Father, as we come to your word, we ask for the ministry of your spirit to be much in evidence. The spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing, and we ask that this time in your word would build us up in Jesus, that we might be more conformed to his image. And so we ask, be glorified, Father, as you speak by your word to prepare your bride to meet you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you have heard, we return this week to the book of 2 Samuel as we continue to look at the biblical record of the life and reign of King David. The section of 2 Samuel that we just read records something that our nation has just experienced, and that is a transition in leadership. If we know anything about the story of David, we know that the broad story arc of the story of David is that 
Saul dies and David becomes the next king over Israel. But as you heard in the text, it was more complicated than that. In part because in ancient Israel, there was no formalized process for an orderly transition of power from one monarch to the next. In fact, up to this point in history, Israel had only had one king, Saul, the man who God, through Samuel the prophet, clearly anointed and named as king, and the people readily united underneath him as their king. In the case of David, although God had clearly anointed him to succeed Saul as the next king of Israel, it was less than clear to David or anybody else how that was supposed to look. So David finds himself in an awkward position here at the opening of 2 Samuel. He knows that God has chosen him to succeed Saul as king over Israel. But what does that look like? How does that work? And the problem was made even more challenging because, as we said before, there was, through much of Israel's history, there was a political fault line that divided the northern tribes from the southern tribe of Judah. That situation had existed for many years, but it became even more noticeable when Saul, from the northern tribe of Benjamin, died. As you might imagine, the northerners in Israel were not anxious to recognize a king from the southern part of their nation, like Judah, or as the author calls it, the house of Judah. That was David. The people of the north were still loyal to King Saul. And although it's clear from chapter 3 that they knew God had put David in as his man, there were at least a few of these people in the north that were working actively to thwart God's will in this transition to David. Well, without a clear plan of succession, when Saul died, someone rushed in to fill that power vacuum. This is where Abner, who was also from the north, comes into the picture. Abner was also the commander of Saul's army. He's his closest advisor, and he's either his uncle or his cousin. The text isn't very clear, but we know he's related to him. So he stood to lose, Abner stood to lose a ton of power when David took over, because he was connected to Saul. So Abner ignores what he knew to be God's will about Saul's successor, in spite of the fact that the men of Judah had already anointed David king over the people of God. Abner chose to put his own candidate in place. He names him king, one of the sons of Saul, a man who was not involved in the battle, who didn't die with the other sons of Saul. Abner shows that he's really the one with the power here as he usurps David's God-given right to the throne by installing his own puppet, the son of Saul Ishbosheth, as the new king of Israel. The obvious challenge for David in all of this is without any formal public way of transferring power to him as the new king over Israel, how does he assume his rightful position of authority over the northern kingdom without alienating them so badly that they would never follow him? See, there are political realities in play 3,000 years ago, just like there are today, and David had to face those. The story basically breaks down into two major sections. The first is, the Lord establishes David as his chosen king over Judah. Let's take a look at that one first, beginning in verse 1. After this, and that's the lament that David gave for Saul and Jonathan, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. 
David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his wives, his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, the, the way that the author presents this particular set of details emphasizes an important truth about David. And that is, it's very clear that David knows that the logical place for him to begin to establish his kingdom is in Judah. Judah is his home tribe. He's already sent the plunder from his victory over the Amalekites back to the elders of Judah. So he's prepared the ground already. It would have made no sense for David to begin his reign anywhere else other than Judah. The point of the author is that unlike Saul, who did not rely on the Lord for guidance, David seeks the Lord's guidance even in matters that would have seemed obvious to him. That's the point. We know from 1 Samuel that the way that he inquired of the Lord is through his priest, Abiathar. So God confirms David's assumptions by telling him to go to Judah and more specifically to go to Hebron. And again, Hebron was the obvious choice because Hebron was by far the most important city in Judah. It was also very close to David's hometown of Bethlehem. But the author's point is to stress that David, the man after God's own heart, establishes God's kingdom on earth, but only under God's guidance. That's what these verses are trying to communicate. Verse 11 gives us some detail about David's rule in Hebron. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now we know from chapter five in this book that David is 30 years old when he begins to reign. By contrast, we see in verse 10 that Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was 40 and he reigned only two years in Israel. And the way you mesh the chronology, according to most scholars, is that Ishbosheth spent five years or thereabouts trying to get the Philistines out of Israel until he finally was able to establish himself. And so his last two years, or his two years, mesh with David's last two years while he was in Hebron. As you read the story, all seems to be going David's way until you get to verse 8. This is where we see the fly in the ointment, a very large fly named Abner. And when you think about David and what he's gone through up to this point on the way to the throne, you have to feel for this guy. At least I do. The Lord had told him more than a decade earlier he's going to be the king over Israel after running for, from his, for his life under Saul, is chasing him around. Finally, he exiles himself and his people in the land of the Philistines. Finally, after all of that, his rival, Saul, is out of the way. But even though Saul is dead, Abner is seen here gumming up the works again by putting Saul's son on the throne over much of Israel. I think at this point, if I saw yet another person loyal to Saul opposing me, I might have said, really, are you kidding me, God? <laughs> I've been doing this for over a decade. When are you going to fulfill your promise to make me king of Israel? Now I have to contend with yet another son by Abner, the commander of his army. So the challenge again for David that kind of drives this whole thing is, and something he can do very little about is how can he assume the throne of Israel without alienating these northerners who are still loyal to Saul and now Saul's son 
is on the throne. One reason for the constant struggle that David experiences to bring God's national and political kingdom to earth is that he foreshadows Jesus, the son of David. In every chapter where David is mentioned, somehow you see Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. And so as you're reading about the life of David, we're regularly asking ourselves, how does this point to Jesus? And this is a very clear area where David's life points to Jesus. David's constant struggle against the forces of evil to establish God's political and national kingdom points forward to the constant struggles that Jesus will have as he fights against the forces of evil to establish God's spiritual kingdom on earth. And so, again, God uses David to reveal something about Jesus here that's very important for us to know. That leads us to the second section of the story, and that is the Lord begins to consolidate all Israel. So first, Judah, but he does begin to consolidate all Israel under David. He does this in two ways. The first way may not seem at all obvious to you. As we said before, whenever you're reading a story in the Bible, you always need to remember that what is included and what is excluded is by the sovereign choice of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a reason for everything that's in the Bible. And so we need to be thinking about the reasons for including certain sections. That helps us to better understand what they mean, if we can find out why they're there. And when you read what happens here with these men of Jabesh-Gilead, it's easy to wonder, okay, I get the story, it's pretty easy, why is this important? It's, it's, it's one-off, Jabesh-Gilead, these men, and yet here it is, why? Okay, verse 5 says, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. In order to know why it's important, we need to know something about the men of Jabesh-Gilead, much of which is in this text. We know that Jabesh-Gilead, they were the men that bravely went and retrieve the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, which had been publicly displayed and was bringing shame on them and on Israel. These were the men who went in the face of opposition, took the bodies down, and had them buried. Okay, that's the point. The point is, for this story, is they were absolutely loyal to Saul. They risked their lives for Saul. And in his message to these men, twice David calls Saul your Lord. Okay? Also... This particular area where they bring him is the capital city of Mahanaim, which is under Ishbosheth, and that's in the capital of the southern kingdom. We know from last time that David was grieved over Saul's death. We know that. And we know that he would have been genuinely grateful to anyone who would have spared his king and his best friend Jonathan public shame. There's nothing in these verses to indicate that David is reaching out to these northerners primarily for political purposes. But having said that, doing what is right by the men of Jabesh Gilead was a wise political move on David's part. He blesses these men and he lets them know that Judah has anointed me king over them. 
So God is clearly using David's expression of appreciation to these men and their bravery as a chance to build some bridges to these people who remain loyal to Saul. As it turns out, they end up following Ishbosheth. But this incident reveals that God is laying a groundwork for David's future reign over these people. So the Lord first works to consolidate Israel under David's rule by diplomacy. I think that's what he's talking about here. By reminding these men of Jabesh Gilead in the north that David too is loyal to their Lord, King Saul. The second and the main way that the Lord works in this time of transition is found in the largest section of this chapter, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. That is this, the Lord works militarily to consolidate all Israel under David. So diplomacy, but this is militarily. David's overture to the men of Jabesh Gilead demonstrates there wasn't going to be any political or diplomatic solution that would by itself bring about this transition to power, thanks to Abner and people like him. It was going to have to occur through military conflict. The challenge continued to be, how does David engage Israel militarily without so badly alienating the people of the north that they would never agree to him as their king? Well, in the providence of God, Abner solves that problem when he instigates the military conflict in verses 12 to 14. It says, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out to Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they went out, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let these young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So the account begins with this very modest conflict involving 12 men from the north and 12 men from the south. This is very similar to what we saw in 1 Samuel 17, in the battle of David and Goliath, Abner is calling on Joab to select 12 men as his representatives to fight for Israel. And then there were 12 men that were going to fight as representatives of David for Judah. Of course, we know that doesn't solve anything because they all very quickly kill each other. In verse 17, we see that this modest conflict soon grows into a full-scale civil war between Abner and his forces from the north and Joab and his forces from the south. The section formally introduces us to this man, Joab. Joab's going to figure prominently in David's life for the rest of his life. David has Joab as his main general. Well, just as Abner was related to Saul, Joab and his brothers, Abishai, who was the one who accompanied David into that raid in Saul's camp in 1 Samuel, and Asahel, those two guys were David's nephews. It's important for us to remember that. They were all sons of David's half-sister, Zeruiah. Never forget the relationship between Joab and David as you watch how that relationship plays out through 2 Samuel. It wasn't uncommon for a man to name as his chief military guy somebody in the family. The most powerful person under the king and the one who had the most power to enact a coup against him was the person who was ruling the army. And so it wasn't all that unusual to have a relative as the person who's over the army. David's nephew, Joab, remains loyal to David all his life. 
He's also brutal and self-serving. And we'll see that more clearly in the next chapter. The author tells us in verse 7 that this first battle of the Civil War between David's men and the men of Saul uh, was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And in verse 18 through 24, the author recounts a very graphic account of one isolated element of the battle between Abner and Joab's younger brother, Asahel. We know from chapter 23 that Asahel was a very powerful warrior. He is listed as number one among David's 30 most valiant warriors. So this was no novice, even though this story does not put him in a big light. He has command over 25% of David's army divisions. That's why when Abner kills him, it says in verse 23, and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. He was a major figure, and this was a major loss for David's army. It also tells us that Abner, who clearly is very confident of his ability to kill Asahel, was not a person you wanted to mess with. Very skilled, seasoned, experienced warrior who had commanded Saul's much larger army. We know that Asahel, it says, was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. He could run fast. In his flight from Asahel, Abner reveals that he's sensitive to the possible consequences for him if he kills Asahel. He wasn't anxious to kill the younger brother of the new king's general, who he obviously in some way knew personally. So Joab tells Asahel to back off from his pursuit. And we know he's very sincere about this because he tells him in verse 21, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner actually tells Asahel to take and to kill one of the young men in his own army and take his spoil instead. Now a general would never sacrifice one of his own troops unless he was desperate. So he very well understands the dynamic here. Verse 23 says about Asahel, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back and he fell there and died where he was. In this particular section of 2 Samuel, you have a couple very graphic pieces of information about combat that frankly, we're not all that interested in. We're not, it kind of grosses us out. But I think it's important for us to see these battles that were fought hand-to-hand were pretty nasty affairs. These were not fun things, and you could die in a thousand different ways, and most of them were very unpleasant. We don't know whether Abner intended to kill Asahel. Um, if, if he, he, we know he might not have because he didn't turn the sharp edge of his spear. He used the blunt edge of the spear. But whether it was intentional or not, The combat lesson seems to be don't run full speed after a seasoned warrior who's well-armed. Again, we have to ask the question when we read this, okay, here it is, it's graphic, it's here, why? Why is this section here? One reason why is because it prepares us for what is to come in the next chapter. That's frequently the reason. They include something that at the time you wonder, why is this here? Joab and Abner were destined to be in conflict. They were both army commanders. One was loyal to Saul, one was loyal to David, and there was only room in David's army for one, okay? 
But the author's account of Abner killing Joab's brother Asahel gives Joab all the motivation he needs to ruthlessly turn on Abner later in the next chapter. And Abner's removal as the commander of Saul's army is another crucial piece in consolidating the kingdom under King David. Part of the reason we do 1st and 2nd Samuel is to equip you to read Hebrew narrative. That's why we go into this. Hopefully, we're not just giving you points to remember. Hopefully, these are questions that you're going to be bringing to the text now. Reading Hebrew narrative, if you're intent at it, is one of the best things about the Bible. It's absolutely fascinating. And Robert Alter, who's a secular guy, I think he teaches at Yale, said nobody in the history of literature has written better narrative than the Hebrew Old Testament. And he doesn't even believe in the inspiration of the Bible. In verse 25 and following, the battle is going badly for Abner. And in verse 26, he basically asks for a truce. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So Joab agrees to this, and both armies return to their respective camps. This is important, because if Joab would have finished this massacre and killed Abner and the rest of his men, that would have made it very difficult for Israel to accept David's rule over Israel. Again, we see the wise providence of God working on David's behalf. David is not doing it. This is not part of any strategy of David. This is God overriding and superintending. It was important the men of Israel freely give David the throne rather than being forced into it by the destruction of their army at his hand. It's crucial for us to know how significant an event in salvation history it was for David to begin his reign over God's people. This is a very important moment in salvation history. David wasn't the first king over God's people, but he was the first king over God's people who met God's job description. He was a man after God's own heart, according to Luke in the book of Acts. King Saul, by contrast, was the kind of king the people would want. That's clearly the contrast here. He was tall, he was handsome, he was an intimidating presence, but he wasn't loyal to God, and he was living for himself. David was God's king, and in that sense, he was the first king to rule over God's kingdom since Adam and Eve ruled in the garden. David was God's unique representative on earth. And it is no accident that he is so viciously opposed. First, he was opposed by Saul, and we know that came from the evil spirit that was in Saul. So this is demonic attack, and the evil spirit repeatedly agitated Saul to kill God's man David. And likewise, in chapter 2, it's no mystery why God's man David, from the earliest moments of his reign, was under attack. And we know from Ephesians 6, chapter 12, that David's opposition was not only or even primarily from Abner. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That was just as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. We certainly aren't naive enough to think that when God revealed to Samuel that David was about to be the new king over his people, that Satan was just dispassionately observing all of that. No, from the moment it became clear that David was God's king over Israel, Satan was on him like white on rice. And it's interesting that he fell not through this kind of temptation, 
but through a very different kind of temptation, one that was much more subtle. First, through the evil spirit in Saul, he was under attack, and now through self-serving Abner. The lesson for us is, until Jesus' returns, God's kingdom on earth will be subject to Satan's vicious attack. 3,000 years ago, that was true, and it's true today. Now, we don't want to make too much of the devil, but we dare not make too little of him either. We must never expect that if we desire to follow God as our king, if we're wanting God's kingdom to come to this earth, that Satan is not going to let us do that unopposed. Satan is the ruler of this dark world, and as members of God's kingdom of light, we live in enemy territory. And that means genuine believers will regularly be drawing the fire of the enemy, especially if we're serious about following Jesus. It's probably said too much in some parts of the church, but the truth remains, if you are a believer, you are either actively warring against the forces of darkness or you are being held captive by the forces of darkness. You only have two options. There's no middle ground. The Christian life is inherently militant, whether we want it to be or not. This story reveals that Satan doesn't waste a second pouncing on David as God's first king. And as members of God's spiritual kingdom under King Jesus, we should expect no better. One reason the gathered church is so important and why I trust we have missed being together for this last year is because the gathered church of Jesus is supposed to be a venue where we can pull the fiery darts out of one another. Whether we can find rest and encouragement from the war in which we're constantly engaged, that often comes from a brother or sister in Christ we see. And this story reminds us that God's kingdom on earth and all members of it until Jesus returns will be under attack. A second point of application is it's as we trust in God and his promise that we see God's kingdom come in our lives, our church, and the world. The second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we all know, is thy kingdom come. What that means is, Father, may your kingdom rule. Come in my life, my family, my church. May it be manifest as your power, your agenda, and your glory are seen in me as you reign in my life. Your kingdom come. David has been promised that God's kingdom rule would come through him. Not just in a spiritual sense, but in a political sense as well. And it's instructive for us to observe and follow David's example in how the kingdom of God came into his life. What does David do to bring this about? That's where we can learn. Think about it. David has promised, as we said before, back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, he's going to be the king one day. Until King Saul dies, David is regularly under attack of some kind. But instead of lashing out against Saul as God's anointed, we repeatedly saw David chose deliberately not to do that against the anointed of God, but instead to trust that God in his perfect timing would do what is necessary to protect him and to get him on the throne. Okay? We see the same disposition as we meet David here in chapter 2. He's still employing the same strategy. He's been promised the throne of God, but instead of independently moving ahead into Judah, he goes to God. And he says, where do you want me to go? And what city? 
He doesn't trust his own impulses. He doesn't autonomously take action. He waits for God to guide him. He trusts in God. Likewise, when Abner comes on the scene, notice David initiates nothing to actively take him down. And when he does die in the next chapter, David actively mourns for him just as he mourned for Saul. It's Abner who's the aggressor here, not David or Joab. As we'll see more later, David also refuses to alienate Israel by being heavy-handed in this transition. He's very light touch here. He waits and he lets God work out all the details. And as we'll see next time, it is stunning how little David actively does here to establish himself over Israel as their king. Mostly, he watches and he waits. Clearly, he prayed as God in his providence eliminates each and every rival to the throne. He knows God has promised him the throne, and he trusts in God's promise to bring that about. And we can learn from that. Like David, we're called to see God's kingdom come more and more into our lives, our church, our community, our nation. Well, what's the foundation for that? Well, in New Testament language, we can see it in 1 John chapter 5. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There it is. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see the connection? We see God's kingdom advance in our lives. We grow spiritually not by our own efforts, our spiritual disciplines, our performance, though those are not unimportant. If we're trusting in those things, that only brings defeat and further enslavement to sin. No, we advance the kingdom of God in our lives through faith as we look to Jesus. Specifically, as we trust in his promises and we rely on his gospel forgiveness and victory over our sin. This is so crucial. The New Testament also teaches that it's by faith, not how sincere we are or how earnest our efforts are. It's by faith. Faith is what activates. Faith is what engages the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's so important to remember. Let's briefly examine just one example of how this works. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That is, religious works like circumcision or being proud of the fact that you aren't circumcised don't register with God. They don't honor him alone. What honors God and his children and what most clearly expresses his kingdom in the life of a believer is love. That's the ethic of the Bible. And like all the fruit of the Spirit, love comes from faith. It's faith working through love, Paul says. The powerful work of the Spirit in our lives is not rooted in the works of the law or our performance. It's by hearing of faith. John Piper puts it this way as it relates to this one example of love. He says, when we exercise faith, the Holy Spirit is flowing in the channel of that faith with love producing power. The faith that brings the Spirit is faith in something heard. It's faith in God's word, the gospel. When we read or hear a portion of God's promise to us in Christ and we believe it, that is, we trust and rest in it and are satisfied by it, then the Holy Spirit is flowing to our hearts and love is being produced. This is so important to understand how the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives and the role of faith. 
This is where you get into the sausage making, and it's not unimportant in terms of our sanctification. That's how faith works through love. David trusted in what he'd heard, the promise from Samuel that God had made him king over Israel. Rather than try to make that happen in his own efforts, he instead trusted in the promise, and God worked miraculously to fulfill his promise in David's life. That's not at all unlike what happens in our lives spiritually. Likewise, God's kingdom will advance in our lives as we continue to look to Jesus and by his grace, activate the spirit of God in our lives by trusting. Trusting in promises like, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Do we believe that? Are we trusting in that? 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Everything we need to be a godly person, God has given to us through Christ. Do we believe that? So when we get stuck spiritually, when we grow discouraged by our lack of progress and we're starting to hate ourselves, rather than just try harder or beat ourselves up, find a promise in God's word that relates to the area of your struggle. This is why Paul calls it the sword of the spirit. This is our offensive weapon. So take that into your heart and meditate on it. Ask God to give you the faith to trust in it and be satisfied by it. Then, just like David, in faith, watch as God works by his spirit through your faith to miraculously bring his kingdom into your life. For instance... If I'm struggling with lust or some other idolatry, rather than simply resolve to stop sinning, which we all know does not work, I find a promise. There's 15 probably we could find, but let's just take one that's more obvious. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when temptation comes, I bring the promise to bear. I wield the sword of the Spirit. My old self that was in bondage to this sin, the Bible says that has passed away. It is forever gone. Do I believe that? I have been made new in Christ with a new heart, and that new heart is pure in spite of what the evidence might seem to produce. Okay? As that and other similar texts are brought to bear as the sword of the Spirit against my sin, God's kingdom comes in my life in the form of increased purity. By faith, through the Holy Spirit. David's life here reminds us that it's faith that brings victory and God's kingdom into our lives. May God give us the grace to trust in him for all things, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, it's not immediately clear how we could learn about sanctification from this chapter, but it's very true, and we get it right out of the text. And God, we're just so grateful that you do this for us, that you would make this for us. Father, sometimes we just, we don't need it in propositions like Paul and, and Peter. We need it in an example like David, as you use his faith to bring about your kingdom in his life. Father, we want you to bring about your kingdom in our life we all have struggles, all have areas where, frankly, we feel shame. And so, God, we pray that rather than do the thing that comes so naturally to us, which is to focus on how terrible we are, or to simply try harder or resolve to do better, Father, help us to do what you call us to do, 
And that is to find a promise, to hear it, to bring it into our heart, and to claim it, and to use it as the sword of the Spirit. Father, thank you, God, for all we get from your word. Apply it to our hearts now. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.